In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Dr. Renee Casey is our guest this week on Money Tales. Renee is a visionary in the realm of technology, artificial intelligence, and big data within the medical field. His journey took an unexpected turn when his daughter was diagnosed with a rare disease, CRPS. At that moment, Renee found himself uniquely positioned, having built a platform for clinical research that intersected with his daughter's condition. It was a fortuitous alignment of passion and purpose that led to his daughter's treatment and recovery. The outcome was priceless, and Renee is now leveraging the platform he built to solve other medical mysteries. Renee's philosophy is simple. Build something of value, and the money will follow. There's no limit. Let me tell you a little more about Renee. He's a surgeon, researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur. As the CEO and co-founder of Metaloop AI and the adjunct professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine, he teaches healthcare entrepreneurship while contributing to the development of the next healthcare prize as part of the XPRIZE Brain Trust Team. His dedication to humanitarian work is evident through his NGO, VaultFace, which has provided over 1 million in free medical care for life changing surgeries to underprivileged patients. Here are three key money topics Renee hits on in this conversation. First, how he describes his relationship to money as being similar to a child's relationship to chocolate. As Renee tells us, not having much money growing up led to an unhealthy relationship like a child deprived of chocolate. Second, how the inspiration to go to business school arose when, as the CEO of a successful business he had founded, Renee realized he didn't know what EBITDA was. And if you're not familiar with that acronym, it means earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And third, how the financial strain resulting from a sick child compounded Renee's concerns for his daughter. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now on to our conversation with Dr. Renee Casey. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. I received an email just the other day and being invited to this event to learn about a camp for the kids. And it seems like a really fun event. And I noticed that it's free. And I was excited about that. I'm like, great, free. But it got me thinking about pricing and free. Complimentary is my favorite way of like, hey, this is an this is a gift. We're not just no value. 
because you're a marketer and you know all these <laughs> key terminologies. It's a funny thing. For me, it lowers the value to some, I don't know, subliminal level in me. It also keeps me from committing. It's a funny thing. You know, if you have to buy tickets and they could sell out, I might jump on it. What do you think about free? How do you approach it when you see that? I think context matters a lot. Even if there's not a monetary cost, there's always a cost of time and attention. That's right. Which can also be priceless. We've talked about that before on Money Tales. I think it just depends. You brought this up. The first thing that came to mind was all those timeshare situations where you can stay for free for (laughs) a night or a weekend or something. And I think they require you to go hear a sales pitch, which is a cost. It's a cost of some of your time. So I think it just depends. I do agree that complimentary is a nicer term. And I know that there are studies that show that also things that guests of ours on Money Tales have shared with us that if you charge for your services, if you charge for your event, then people value it more. And sometimes when you charge a higher price, they value it even more than when you charge a higher price. So it's an interesting question, Cammie. And it all comes down to context. It's funny. It comes down to strategy and what's your approach and what are you trying to accomplish with it? And maybe just its terminology, free versus complimentary. Well, I get the pleasure of pivoting to our guest today. I'd like to welcome Dr. Renee Casey to the Money Tales podcast. Hi, Cammie. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for having me today. It's really our treat, and we would appreciate if you would introduce yourself and in doing so, share a couple pivotal moments that have taken place in your life that really influenced and impacted who you are today. That's a big question. You're going to have to cut me off, I think. (laughs) There were a few of those moments. Just to give you a bird's eye view of who I am, I was born on the east coast of Canada in a very small fishing village in the province of New Brunswick. I'm very far from home being here in California. I was trained as a surgeon, as a maxillofacial surgeon. I also did research in neurosciences while I was doing that. I taught medicine at McGill University in Montreal. I also studied at Cornell University in New York City, did some peripheral nerve regeneration stuff there. And finally, I came and did a degree at Stanford. I wanted to study business, and Stanford's one of the best places to do so in North America. So that's how I landed up here in California. The moment we set foot on the Stanford campus, I remember the third day, my wife looked at me and she said, we are not leaving. We're not going back to Montreal. And <laughs> we are home. So we, bec- we became American and then here we are. A couple of pivotal moments. I still remember when I was a kid, I was adopted, my adoptive dad. I clearly remember him. I was a young child and he showed me this diagram of how a 401k in Canada was called an RSP. And he was like, listen, you're 10 years old. If you start putting in money now, look at what it's going to look like when you're 40. And I was like, whoa, small, small amounts. By the time you're a young adult, you're like a millionaire a few times over. I clearly remember that. Unfortunately, I didn't do much about it, but I still remember it. I wish I had. That was my earliest memory of how you could put money to work and make more out of very small amounts. And it was very impactful on me. Again, didn't use it, but I remember it clearly. Good job, dad. You're 10 years old. He's showing you a chart. Obviously, charts mean something to you. So you're impacted 
though you didn't act. Within your family, how was money handled beyond this educational moment? Taking a step back from there, I'm in a small fishing village on the eastern coast of Canada where people either work at the factory, they're fishermen, they work in agriculture, and people don't leave that place. It's rare that people make it out of there. The feeling that I had when I was a kid is that I couldn't let myself believe that I could accomplish something that was bigger than myself, something big, like becoming a millionaire. It was just not accessible to me at that point in life. That changed over time, but it took a few pivotal moments. I'm curious, Renee, what got you out of that area that you grew up in? How did you find the agency to leave? One of my gifts that I got from the universe was having a decent mind. I was good in school. I was early on playing competitive hockey, like most small Canadian kids do and want to do. I remember hiding the fact that I was good in school so I wouldn't get picked on, but I just did well in school. It it just came to me. I just got it. And when you're good in school, what do people tell you you should do? You should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer. Those are the two buckets that were presented to me. Nobody told me I should go in business. So I was kind of pushed down that route of being a doctor. And that's where things changed. I went from being in a small fishing village where not much was possible to being in the big city where people thought big and things happened. And I started getting a touch of that. Early on, I found that if I just believed something and I went after it and I took that very first step to go towards that goal, that it would just happen. I have multiple examples of this happening, putting that thought out there, taking the first step and things happen. Doors start opening for you. Paired with building things of value, you know, you can create some magic. I have two kids now and I wish I would have got what my kids are about to receive from me is that mindset of, listen, you literally have to think it. Think of what you want to do. Think of building something of value. What I'm not telling them, though, is try to make money. Build something of value and the money will come. But there's no limit. So I started late in life. But when I got to the big city, I was given the opportunity of being able to think big magic started happening in my life. And here I am a couple of decades later, living in Silicon Valley, where entrepreneurs are building the biggest companies on earth. You took an interesting path. Going into medicine is arduous. It's a lot of work and investment and time for your goals. Tell us a little bit about pursuing your dream within medicine, if it was your dream. And if you thought about the financial investment in doing so. The thing about getting accepted into any of these healthcare programs like dentistry or medicine or physiotherapy is you can access money with no credit. People will just start lending you cash. It's free. (laughs) It's free cash. That's dangerous, especially for a kid like me that didn't know much about money except for that chart from when I was 10 years old. It just enabled me to live a stress-free life on the financial side to be able to concentrate on studying medicine, studying surgery. I actually did do dentistry before med school. It was a fantastic time of my life. The program that I did took about 14 years to complete. It takes a long part, chunk of your life. But during that time, I started 
innovating. I found problems in my space in surgery. I, I did a first little invention that started being used in my hospital. And that's when I that little switch turned on of, wow, I can use my medical knowledge to build products, to build tech that could be of value to others and maybe build a business out of it. And that's what kind of closed the loop for me and got me into switch over to business. So you went to Stanford Business School, some ideas and some success built on these big ideas that you had to add value into the world. I'm curious, did business school change your relationship with money? I came from a place where we did not have much of it. We barely survived. So I've always had an unhealthy relationship with money and the way I think about money. I guess the correlation or an example I could give of this is preventing a child from eating chocolate for his entire when he's a kid, then he's just going to come out, you know, he's going to have an unhealthy relationship with chocolate. That's always been my relationship with money. Here at Stanford, we learn about accounting, we learn about finances, we learn about how to raise capital. But the number one thing that I got from Stanford was how to build something of value, build something that's going to increase by 10x the efficacy of whatever somebody's doing or reduce the time that it takes to complete a task by 10x and people will buy it. You've got a business on your hands. It didn't change my relationship with money, but it definitely changed the way I saw or felt about scaling a business and building a business that could be deployed across the world that could create tremendous value for myself and for my family and for my community. It sounds, Renee, like scaling your impact. So as a doctor, you know, sort of one patient at a time, but it sounds like you've been able to scale your impact. And I wonder if you could talk about that feeling as you've built your first business and you're impacting more people with your medical technology. Will you describe what that was like? You make a decent paycheck when you become a surgeon, I was making tons of money, especially that I'd been living as a student for 14 years. When you, you get that first paycheck out of school, it's so much cash. It's just mind boggling. What am I going to do with it? One of the first things that I did was to hire an engineer. And I decided foolishly that I was going to build an electronic medical records platform because I didn't like the one that I was using at the hospital and my medical clinic. I just didn't like the technology I'm a big Apple geek. I like everything that's Apple. So I wanted to build an EMR for my clinic, not to build a business, but just for me so I could have fun taking notes, doing prescriptions, looking at labs. So I took that big paycheck and I started investing in an engineer and then a second engineer. And a few years later, people wanted to buy my product because I fixed my problem. I built something of value for me and people wanted to buy it. Two and a half years in, we had a million patients on the platform and we were the hot technology up there and we were acquired. Big multi-billion dollar corporation came along. We were stealing contracts from them and they said, we are going to buy your business. Although we were not for sale and told them we were not for sale, but <laughs> the scene in the movies where they pushed the envelope across the table and it turned out that I was for sale. Bring the big suitcase. <laughs> and that's where I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think I was going to build a business. I wanted to build something of value that was going to help me increase my productivity. I wasn't thinking of 10xing anything. I was just, I would just want to do it better. I built this product that became extremely valuable. And that's where I really got the bug. 
I'm going to tell you a little story. I remember the first time that we met those executives for that first meeting where they told us they wanted to acquire us. I remember the guy asking me, so what's your EBITDA? And I did not know what that was. I was a doctor, 14 years. I just built a company that people wanted to buy. And I was the CEO and I did not know what EBITDA was. So I figured I should probably go get a business degree at that time. I knew I didn't want to go into the hospital. I did practice surgery for 10 years, helping one patient at a time. I loved my work. At one point, I decided that I wanted to build another business. I didn't want to bootstrap the business. I wanted to come to a place where you could easily raise capital to build a unicorn, to build a company that would scale North America and trickle down to the rest of the world. And it's hard to do that if you're not in an environment like Stanford. I'm not saying it's the only place to do so, but it certainly gives you a massive advantage. I came to Stanford with wings on my back. I decided right from the get-go that I was going to build a research platform, that I was going to make things bigger, faster, build a team, raise capital, and conquer the world in research. And maybe that's something we can talk about. But while we were building this research platform that will become extremely valuable, my daughter got sick. She was diagnosed with a rare disease, and I was building a platform to do clinical research, and we pivoted to study her disease, CRPS. We're starting to onboard patients that are afflicted with this disease. And that's what I was telling you earlier. Sometimes you just need to think big, put it out there, and things start happening. And look what happened. I was building a research platform, and my daughter became ill. And there's nothing known about this disease, and we needed this product to find a cure for this thing. That's what I mean, and I've experienced this my entire life. It might sound a bit quaky to talk that way. I've always had a deep conviction that if I think of something, put it out there, and just take the first few steps, things start happening. There's problems along the way. There's major obstacles, but you always find ways around them if you truly believe in what you're doing. I love the power of the mindset that you're talking about, Renee, and what you've been able to accomplish with it. And I'm curious, as you were pivoting your business to focus on your daughter's illness, what was that like for you as a parent? Because you're a business leader, you're a parent, you're a physician who understands how the body works. What was that like for you? And were there financial implications at that time in your life? Canada has its major problems in healthcare, but in Canada, if you go to the hospital, no matter who you are, if you're a citizen of Canada, you walk into a hospital, nobody's ever going to ask you to take out your credit card or your check or sure insurance. You're just covered. That's a big plus. The wait lines are absolutely horrendous, but that's for another talk. Here in the US, if you go to the hospital, the first thing that they ask when you step into that waiting room is, do you have your hospital card? My daughter ended up being hospitalized in and out of hospitals for three months, sometimes for on ketamine drips for weeks. The bills associated to that hospital, three-month hospital stay was just tremendous. And we had some horrendous scares there. At one point, we didn't think we were covered. It was a multi-million dollar bill that could have broken us financially. We were lucky. I'm at Stanford. I can pick up the phone and I know everyone and people just start calling on your behalf. And it's such a huge advantage. And I actually talked to my wife about this. If we were not who we are and we didn't have these resources, we would have been screwed. We could have lost everything. 40% 
uh, bankruptcies in America, I believe, are due to medical bills. 40%, it's massive. We were able to get somebody from Stanford to call our insurance company and make things happen for us. But if we did not have that resource, it would have been disastrous for us and our family. So firstly, the financial implications of having a sick child are so stressful. I had to drop out of my program. I had to stop building the company, ask my buddies to continue working on this thing while we were at the hospital with Stella. The second thing is my daughter, I remember the first day she was lying in the hospital this disease that she has, it causes the worst pain known to men. I want you to imagine putting your thumb on a table and hitting it as, as hard as you can with a hammer, as hard as you can smack it. Try to imagine that pain. CRPS causes worse pain than that on the pain scale. So kids usually end up taking their lives because of these pains. They lose the use of their limbs. My daughter's in the hospital. I know there's not much known about this disease. I know there's not many treatments. And I'm a doctor, and I can't help my child. There's the financial stress that's pushing us in the back. There's my daughter that who knows what's going to happen. And then there's the medical team that you have to deal with. I was extremely lucky to get this man called Dr. Elliot Crane take over the treatments with the rest of his medical team. There was Andrew Din and a bunch of wonderful doctors, but they were crazy enough to listen to a crazy parent that said, I'm building a platform. I'm going to help you guys figure this thing out. They're at Stanford. You know, they're top of the food chain in the medical world. But they actually said, okay, let's do this. And we started working with these guys to push our platform to start studying this disease. Della's lucky she's in full remission now. But our platform, two years later, is now being used to start onboarding patients for CRPS. And it was just presented at the World Pediatric Pain Conference a couple of weeks ago as the research study tool for for pediatric pain diseases. It's heart-wrenching on many facets to have sick family members. Thank you for sharing that story, Renee. That's powerful. I'm so glad that it has such a happy ending with her in remission and you being able to help now solve this issue for other patients that are suffering from her disease. Tell us more about the technology. How does it work? We're at the intersection of technology, AI, and big data in medicine. So what we do is we go and grab all the data that's known about this disease from Stanford University, for example. We can ingest all of their patient data. We then connect the patients on a wearable device like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit to collect continuous information about what's going on when they're not at the hospital. They have tools to scan their foods using computer vision They can report symptoms. So when these children have a pain flare, they can report the pain flare. They can report a headache, an abdominal pain. And we take all of this data, mash it up together. We clean it, harmonize it, and we push it off up to what's called a graph database. And we use LLMs. You guys have probably used ChatGPT. So we use what's called a transformer to start interacting with that data. And you can start talking to your database as if it's a person. And you can say... What is driving pain flares in patients with CRPS? And it'll go and run these machine learning algorithms to find trends in the data to help researchers get answers that would have taken them years to find, basically, is what we do. Wow. When I hear of ChatGPT, I think of writing things and scaling that. That's mind-blowing and so appreciative. I can't even imagine... 
I'm so thrilled for so many people that are going to benefit in this one example you've shared and in other places. I appreciate it. If I would have started building this platform and my mindset would have been one of building this to make cash, we're going to build a research platform and we're going to build it to make money. We'd be in a different place today. When we started building this, the reason people just started showing up at our door wanting to be part of this movement, it became a movement. We had professors wanting to help out because we were trying to solve a disease for a bunch of kids. We had their photos. One of them was my child. People just started showing up to help us build this platform. We had people from Google Brain, from Andrew Eng's lab at Stanford wanting to pitch in, people that had histories, stories of sick children themselves that could pitch in. And all of a sudden, we had a massive team. We had barely raised any cash. You see that the mindset is different. You build for money, people don't come. You build for mission, you build to solve a problem. You build a product to help humans. People will come to that. People resonate to that story. And guess what? You will achieve goal one of making money. It'll come. Build a product that will create value in the world and you will make money. Money will come. You shouldn't think about making money. Think about building things of value. And medicine is just one of them. We're all living in this world where things are broken. And if you have the mindset of looking at broken things and thinking you can use existing technologies to fix them, you've got businesses on your hands there. You mentioned these medical bills and this fire just coming down. That's something that is so broken. Do you think some of these ideas can help us solve? You said 40% of bankruptcies. And this is awful. We've got to figure this out. We just have to have the right person or team to come and figure it out. The moment somebody steps out to do this, you do have to have the right education, the right contacts, but this is a solvable problem. Every time we get to a big problem in our company, we have them daily come up to like, oh gosh, how are we going to fix this? That seems pretty crazy. I always think of Elon Musk wanting to populate Mars. Now that's complicated. Got to build a rocket, make sure that it can fly. They can go out there. I don't know how many weeks of travel that is. And then build an environment where humans can thrive, where there's nothing in a harsh environment. That is our problem. Most of our problems here on earth can be solved with tech. We can build products to solve these problems. This one is a massive one, but it can be fixed. And hopefully we'll see that happen in our lifetimes. Renee, I like how you put the emphasis on building businesses on solving problems and how when you solve problems that create value for people, it creates value for the business owner and and money will come. It makes me wonder, given what you've shared already about your history with money and where you came from, as money has started to come, as you've been successful, how are you handling that? That could be a big change for someone who grew up without any money and then all of a sudden the dollars are starting to accumulate. I met my wife 12 years ago. She comes from a more comfortable childhood than I do by a long shot. We live here in California, a very small house, three bedrooms, and we have everything that we need. I have a small car. She has an SUV, and we're not looking for more. We're not thriving to get a big mansion. We don't desire that. What we do desire is to have enough in the bank to never think about money again whatever that is, and keep living 
the way we're living now. We don't want more. And I truly hope that I don't change my mind. But when we do IPO this thing and that I ring the NASDAQ bell, that I'm not going to change in that manner, that we'll still want to keep living a normal, healthy life and being able to share those resources with friends and family to make sure that they don't have any money problems in the future. My wife is the same. We don't dream of having a fortune in the bank account. That's just not a goal of ours. We just want enough to not think about it and live our daily wonderful life. I must say that life here in California is pretty incredible. Nature is fantastic, but you don't need to pay for nature. It's free for all. We have good medical insurance. I can't buy better. I might go for a four-bedroom house. I think that would be cool (laughs) to be able to get my mom to come and stay with us. But the relationship with money won't change. I've never had a relationship with money. I've never really thought about it. I've just thought about when the bank account gets low a bit, I start looking at it. But the rest of the time, I don't have a relationship with money. But you thought of it as chocolate. I love that analogy. When you gave that example, were you spending money? When I got accepted in my program, I remember they opened up like a 200000 or $250,000 line of credit. I've been poor all my life, like really, really poor. A lot of money. Like, holy crap, what do I do with that? You go crazy for a couple of weeks. You go and buy a big computer and very unhealthy. I just went and splurged and bought some nice clothes and brought my friends out to dinner. If I would have had a healthier relationship with money at the beginning, I wouldn't have had that craving of spending $10,000 that first week. I've never had it, so I didn't know how to handle it. I'm by no means a wealthy man on the monetary aspect. I consider myself extremely wealthy because of my lifestyle that I have today that I would not want to change for anything. I think that urge went away a bit, that chocolate urge. You got it out of your system? Yeah, you had a few tastes. That's a great story of taste, but then you came back to your values. I am curious, though. Have you been contributing to your retirement plan like your dad taught you to? (laughs) Not as much as I should. The kids are set up. The kids are really well set up. They'll be proud. (laughs) We'll be okay. Hopefully we won't need 401ks when everything is said and done with this company. Renee, this has been such a special money conversation. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It is going to be with my children. I've learned a few things along the way. I've built a few businesses. I've went to business school. I'm going to teach my children how to have a good relationship with money and make sure they don't have that chocolate urge down the road. Sounds like a great conversation. Renee, where is the best place for our listeners to find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on our website. It's medaloop.ai. M-E-D-E-L-O-O-P dot A-I. Fantastic. Renee, thank you for sharing your stories. We're really pleased that there's people like you out there solving such important problems in the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.